0: We're gonna now start a new series. We're starting on a new sermon series called The Joseph Stories, God's Purposes in a Dysfunctional World. So this is the end of Genesis. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab your Bible and open it up to Genesis, the first book of our Bible, first book of the Old Testament. And we're gonna be in the last few chapters starting in chapter 37. So Genesis chapter 37 is where the Joseph stories begin. And really the whole end of Genesis is about Joseph and his life. And so that's Genesis chapter 37. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some black Bibles under the chairs and you could turn to page 31 in one of those black Bibles. Page 31, it's right there at the beginning. um, Very near to the beginning. The Joseph stories are gonna show us that God is at work even when everything is falling apart. And I know that you need to hear that and I know I need to hear that. Because frankly, the world we live in is a dysfunctional world. The world we live in is a world where things often fall apart, where we are often conflicted and broken and hurt and wondering, God, where are you? And so these are gonna be a great series of stories that allow us to see God's hand at work. With this first story, the introduction to the Joseph stories, we're calling it Shattered Dreams. Shattered Dreams. Joseph starts off with some dreams and then everything kind of falls apart. I want to start by starting uh, way back with a couple that seemed to have it all, telling you a story about this couple. And um, this was a couple that, that truly had it all. I mean, you know, we use that as a phrase, living the dream, having it all, but, but they really did. They had this incredible relationship, this perfect love, this storybook romance where they were just sure without a shadow of doubt that God had put them together. They loved each other so much. They knew they were made for each other. And not only did they have this perfect storybook romance, but they lived in the most beautiful city you could imagine. It it was a paradise. It was just perfect. And not only was it this perfect place, but there was a spiritual dimension to their life as well. They had an intimate, close relationship with God. They loved each other. They lived in an absolutely beautiful place. And they walked with God. They knew him. They knew him well. And this couple, with everything going for them, still gave in to temptation and decided that it made more sense to trust themselves than to trust God. A tempter came to them and encouraged them to believe that God was holding out on them, that God didn't really want their best, and that he was trying to keep secrets from them. He was trying to keep them from truly being happy and truly being like gods themselves. So this couple, Adam and Eve, they they reached out and they grabbed the forbidden fruit. And in that moment, they chose to no longer trust God, but to trust themselves. And that plunged the world into what we would call sin and death. It plunged the world into this world of dysfunction that you and I live in now, a world where everything is broken, where nothing quite works right. And the book of Genesis starts off with this story showing us everything was perfect and yet now everything is broken. And we can all see that. You just walk outside, you can see it. Man, the world is gorgeous and amazing. And it's broken. People are incredible and glorious. We're made in the image of God and, and we're broken. We're dysfunctional. We're sinful. We wander. And so Genesis sets this course. It helps us to understand this bigger story of what's going on. And what's really amazing is right when all this sin breaks into the world, in Genesis chapter 3, God comes in and he gives a curse to the tempter. He gives a curse to Satan and he says, your head is going to be crushed by a a son of Eve. Basically what he's saying is there's going to be a member of humanity who you've just tricked and you've just totally let off the path that's going to come back and destroy you. Now now we know that that story finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ himself. He's ultimately the one who crushed the head of the serpent. But, but to make this story work, right, we have to kind of go back in time and say, what if, it, what if we didn't know all those details yet, right? Like what if we were still waiting to see this son of Eve come that would destroy evil once and for all? And so when we kind of try to rewind and try to pretend like we don't know that Jesus is the answer to all this, we can go back and we can see in Genesis 12, God coming to Abraham and God tells Abraham, I'm gonna work through your family. And through your family, all the nations are gonna be blessed. And he starts clarifying this this promise that he made to the serpent, that a son of Eve would come and crush evil once and for all. And then we say later, later on, God actually gives this vision, this dream to Abraham where he cuts a covenant with him. And it's really amazing. God knocks Abraham out, puts him over to the side, They walk through these dead animals. This is, sorry, it's gross, but this is how they did covenants in the Middle East, right? They would walk through the blood of these sacrificed animals because what they were trying to signify is that if either one of them didn't keep the agreement, they're saying, may this blood come upon me, right? May I be destroyed just like these animals were if I don't fulfill my end of the bargain. But what did God do when he made this covenant with Abraham? He knocked Abraham out and set him over to the side. And God, by himself, went between the animals. The smoking fire pit, fire pot of, of Genesis chapter 15. So God's presence goes through the dead animals. And God is, in essence, saying, Abraham, I'm making a covenant with you. You're going to bless the whole world. This, this salvation that's going to come through Son of Eve, it's going to come through you and, your, you and your family. And I'm making the covenant. And may it come upon me if you don't fulfill the covenant. May it come upon me if I don't fulfill the covenant. God was taking upon himself the covenant stipulations, the the threats, the the blood of the covenant. He was taking that on himself. Basically, he was saying, humanity, if you fail to fulfill this project, it's going to come down on me. And that story keeps unfolding in Genesis. He makes reassurances to Isaac, the son of Abraham. He reassures him, I'm really going to do this. I'm really going to bless the world through your family line. He comes to Jacob. He gives this crazy dream to Jacob. I don't know if y'all remember this story, but Jacob has this vision, this dream with God, and he sees angels ascending, descending on this ladder to heaven, this stairway to heaven. Jacob gets this vision that, that God is gonna bridge the gap between heaven and earth. All of those promises, all of that expectation leads us up to this story. Now we have Joseph one of the sons of Jacob. They've all been told this is going to happen. They've all been given these promises. If you read the stories in detail, though, they, they struggled to believe. They wandered. They had a hard time really trusting that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. And that, that's what catches us up to Genesis chapter 37 and the dreams of Joseph. So let's read now the dream of Joseph in Genesis chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan, and these are the generations or the sons of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy, that phrase boy can mean like a servant boy, he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. I'm going to read the rest of the story in a little bit, but I wanted to give you kind of an overview of the direction we're going here. We've got this idea that these dreams that came Joseph were promises of his rule and his reign and what God was going to do, and yet as this story progresses, everything falls apart. Everything utterly falls apart. And so Joseph is going to have to struggle to believe, struggle to trust that God is going to fulfill all the promises that he made going all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. And so as we move through the text and we read more of the story, what I want us to see is that, first of all, Joseph's family was dysfunctional. I think that's uh, helpful for us in our modern world because most of us, we grew up in dysfunctional families as well. And I think we have this weird kind of glossed overview of the Bible sometimes where we just think everything that happened in the Bible was good, right? But then you actually start reading the Bible and you realize, whoa, this is, this is messed up, right? They had some serious issues. So we want to start with that. Uh, his family was dysfunctional. There were some issues. There were problems that they had. Second thing we wanna see is really that intensifies in, in real genuine sin and abuse, takes place. Joseph was abused. We need to deal with that. And then finally, what we want to see as we move through the story is that sometimes God leaves us hanging and it's hard to see his purposes being worked out because the story leaves us hanging. So we want to we want to acknowledge that, that that's sometimes how God is writing the story. We're kind of just hanging on and wondering, God, God, what are you doing here? And that's part of how God reveals himself to us is, is through that tension waiting to see what he's doing. So let me pray for us. Uh, It's gonna be some hard stuff that we look at as we look at the painful things that Joseph faced. I'm gonna pray that God would meet us here um, because sometimes this dredges up painful memories, hard things we've gone through. Um, So no, I'm praying for you, praying for myself, that God would meet us here through his word. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these stories. We believe that you speak to us through your word. We believe that your word, the Old and New Testament, speak with the authority and relevance of, of Jesus himself. So we pray that your spirit would open our hearts, our minds to hear what you have for us this morning. God, comfort our hearts. Um, it's hard to see hard things like this, to see the, the pain and the difficulty and the abuse. And, and we just pray that you would help us uh, to be comforted through this as well. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, the Joseph stories are going to be a, an up and down kind of roller coaster. Start off with this big dream of, of this amazing rule, right? Things bowing down to him, him being impressive. He's the favorite son, all of this. And we're going to see it kind of fall apart this week. We're going to see it seeming to fall apart in following weeks as well. But, but most of you know the full story. It's an up and down adventure in which God's sovereignty ultimately wins. But first of all, I want us to think about this idea that Joseph's family was dysfunctional. I don't know if you've ever heard this. I've heard this before. I've had friends that would say things like, well, back in the Bible times, they blah, blah, blah. Have you ever, have you ever heard that? As if that's like a pattern, like things that people did in the Bible times was automatically good. Have you ever heard that? Um, I, I've heard that. We mix up sometimes things we read in the Bible. We read that you know, Abraham had multiple wives or Jacob had multiple wives. And we think, oh, well, I guess God was okay with that because it was in God's book, right? But God made it really clear. and, And we know this because of Jesus. Jesus says, well, the purpose for marriage was one man, one woman forever. That was God's design in creation. Jesus goes back to the creation account and says, this was the plan. And all the times that the early characters in the Bible diverged from that plan, they were wrong right? Like just because you get to be a character in the Bible, that that doesn't mean that everything you do is right, okay? (laughs) This is an important theological thing to understand here. Um, And I I think this is kind of moving on from a kind of a a Sunday school understanding to a a deeper biblical understanding. The things that the characters did in the Bible were often very, very wrong. And and their only salvation was that they, they clinged to God by faith, right? They trusted him. Right? Like we see this, Paul makes the argument when he, in Galatians, talks about Abraham in Genesis. He says, Abraham wasn't saved because of the good things he did. He, he was saved because he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Like he trusted God. That's where his salvation lies. And, and so we need to be able to look at the Old Testament with those eyes where we can discern the good and the bad. And so we're going to see some things and just kind of point out some things in the text here that are, that are not really good. It says in verse two, Joseph being 17 years old was pasturing the flock with his brothers and he was a boy with the sons of Billah and Zilpah, his father's wives. So, so first of all, he, he was a boy, that, that word can mean, like I said, kind of like pool boy, right? It's more like assistant in the Hebrew. So he was a helper to his brothers. And it says specifically the brothers that were sons of Zilpah and Bilhah. So those were a couple of handmaidens that Jacob had had children with. Jacob also had children with Rachel and Leah, if you remember the story. So Jacob's got multiple wives. And I just want to encourage you guys, that's, that's a bad idea, right? It just complicates things. Um, and and I, I, I want to be careful about this, right? Because I know a lot of you are, have had multiple marriages and, and you've made mistakes and started over. So, so I'm not sharing this to try to like make you feel guilty or make you feel ashamed. It's just important that we would understand like, what is God's ideal? And when we stray from God's ideal, it messes things up. I think that's just the important thing to know. So it's not about feeling shame now for all the things we've done in the past. We can all be forgiven in Christ. It's just understanding like what is what is God's plan? Cuz we often diverge off the path of God's plan. God's plan is for one man and one woman to be together forever. That's what Jesus points out very clearly in the text from the creation account. And here Jacob just cuz he's a Bible hero, it doesn't mean it makes it right, right? He's got four wives. He's got 12 kids. Well, actually, he's got 12 sons. He's got way more kids. He's got a bunch of daughters as well. And we see all kinds of dysfunction here. Look at the end of verse two. It says, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Uh, their father. Some of these little, little sayings in the text aren't real clear, right? They're, they imply that there was something bad under the surface, right? Um, so one of the clues here is that bad report, that word report, throughout the scripture, we're encouraged, like in the book of Proverbs, to give good reports. And um, the idea is kind of like, like gossip, right? Like if you see something bad, the, the encouragement from the book of Proverbs is that you would take that bad thing and, and try to paint it in the most positive light possible. That would be biblical wisdom, not lie. You know, if, if you got to report to your dad about the family business, of course, there are facts you need to report. So commentators are mixed on how to interpret this but it seems like maybe he's being more negative than he needs to be, right? It seems, again, this is an implication. We can't nail this down for sure, but it seems like possibly he wants to really convict his brothers of bad behavior. Now, I'm sure they're doing bad stuff because they do bad stuff throughout the story. So, <laughs> so we know they're guilty. The question is, is, is Joseph guilty at all? You know, has Joseph done anything wrong? I think on an easy reading or a quick reading of the text, it seems like Joseph does everything right. But, but when you kind of read between the lines, like, well, maybe, maybe he was stirring up trouble here. Look at verse three. It says, now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. You've probably heard of this before, the coat of many colors, the robe of many colors. Um, commentators, again, will disagree over the real micro details of what this means. Some believe it means a very decoratively ornamented robe, you know, like a fancy robe, some, means it's, uh, some think it, it means it's just woven with different colors in it, as the translation says here. Some believe it means a robe with nice sleeves, right? Which Sounds kind of strange. Um, I guess that was like a, a fancy thing to have back then to actually have sleeves. Um, but no matter which of those interpretations the Hebrew scholars take, they all agree it was fancy, okay? <laughs> it was really nice. This was something for royalty. This was a very purposeful designation of giving him something great, and wonderful, and basically publicly declaring, he's my favorite son. And so again, we see family dysfunction. Another way to say this, just practically, parents, uh, even if one of your kids is your favorite, don't let them know that, right? (laughs) The way we handle that in our family is we joke that they're all our favorites, right? And we kind of like say it in front of them, and they all know we've said it to each other and all that. But uh, it's important for your kids to not think like one is more important to you than the other. Need to be, I see people pointing fingers at the kids here in the audience. We, we need to help our kids understand that we trust them, that we love them, that that we care for all of them. And this was not that kind of family, right? And some of you might have grown up in this kind of family as well, where you just, you wondered if your parents really cared about you as much as they cared about the other ones. Well, it was clear in this family that there was favoritism. Verse four says, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to them. Now Joseph had a dream. He told his brothers the dream and when he told it, they hated him all the more. Again, this is another one of those things where there's an implication, right? You have to be careful with stories. When you read narratives in the Bible, they are like big main points that are obvious that the story just makes absolutely clear and then there are like little subtle things that are harder to understand. So this is another one of those subtle things. Like, was it smart of Joseph to tell the brothers about the dream, right? Like he was 17 year old. Uh, this was a, a tribal chieftain culture, right? Like he had the lower place and yet he's sharing this dream of I'm gonna be exalted over all of you. I, I think it's fair to ask that question. I think at least he was being insensitive. Again, it's hard to know that the text doesn't nail it down, right? The text doesn't say on... Joseph sinned by sharing, you know, like, what else was he supposed to do? He had a dream. He should share it, right? Like, it's, it's easy to see both sides of the issue, but I think at least he was insensitive in how he shared the dream. It goes on, and he shares a second dream in verse 9. I want to pick up the story there. He dreamed the first dream about the sheaves of wheat, right, like the stacks of grain bowing to each other. And then he dreams a second dream in verse 9, and it says it this way. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. So again, it's this, it's this mixed bag of this dysfunctional situation, right? And that's the way a lot of our families are. We're like, well, this was good and that was bad. Well, that, I'm not sure if that was bad or not because like I can understand why this person did that bad thing that hurt my feelings. You know, like our families are this mixed spaghetti bowl of all the stuff, right? So he shares this other dream. They're jealous of him. They hate him all the more. His dad rebukes him, tells him basically this was wrong, but then what does it say after that? but his dad kind of pondered it, you know? Like his dad was thinking, hmm, maybe God's at work, right? Like maybe 17-year-old Joseph is immature in his sharing of these dreams, but that doesn't mean God's not giving him this dream, right? That doesn't mean that God is not sovereignly promising this is the way things are gonna go. And so I think it's important just to recognize there's just a mixed bag of, of dysfunction here. And we all come from dysfunctional families as well. And it's really helpful for us to just see it and name it and recognize it, right? Um, I grabbed a picture here of a kind of a family photo, a couple kissing their baby. If you can't see the, the photo from the back, it's a mom and dad lovingly kissing their child and the child looks utterly terrified, Right? <laughs> And I share this because this might represent your childhood. Um, For some of us, there was clear dysfunction, we were mistreated, there was favoritism, there was brokenness, and we know it, and it's clear, and it's black and white. For some of us, though, um, our mom and dad just tried to love us, and, and we misinterpreted it. Right? Like, follow me for a second. As a child, do you ever think you misunderstood what happened in the world around you growing up? Yeah, a lot of times your, your parents actually were loving you and you interpret it the wrong way. So family dysfunction extends beyond just those bad people around you. It includes you as well, right? You and I, we're a part of that family dysfunction. Sometimes we misinterpreted what actually happened. And so I think it's important to be able to stop and look back on our childhood, not to be a victim, not to blame everybody, but just to see things as they really are and to say, this was good, this was bad, man, all this, I'm not even sure, you know, to <laughs> kind of line that stuff up. It's an exercise I do in premarital counseling with couples. I say, hey, look back on, on your family of origin before you start a new family as a married couple. Look back on the things that you can bless and praise as good and, and name those things and say, man, those were good things, I loved it, and I want to continue that. It's a really good exercise in, in obeying the Ten Commandments and honoring our father and mother, right? Like there's gotta be some good that you could find, right? Even those of you that grew up in a really difficult situation, there's, there's something good. Maybe it wasn't your parents, maybe it was your grandparents or aunts and uncles or a mentor or a teacher, something you can look back into your past and say, man, God gave me good things there and I wanna continue that, that legacy that was passed on to me. That's a really important part of the process of looking back on our family dysfunction. And then the other side of that is naming the stuff that was broken, and just say, that was broken, and I don't want to continue that. Because if you don't look at it and think about it and analyze it by God's word, you're just going to be captive by it. Men especially, this is important. um, Men especially, I think, have this problem of saying, I'm fine, right? Like, it's fine, it didn't matter, it didn't hurt my feelings. I don't have feelings, I'll be okay, right? Uh, Women, you do that as well, but I think men do it more than women. It's important, even if you don't feel the brokenness, It's important to just go back through the exercise and just look at it. Just observe and say, what is scripture? What does God think about this past that I grew up in? I was in a a marriage group with my wife where it's kind of almost like a marriage therapy group. It's basically a Bible study learning about biblical ideas of marriage. And we all had to share our life story. Uh, And the way I'm wired, I shared my life story. A lot of loneliness, brokenness, pain, abandonment, and just shared it just like that. Here you go. This bad thing happened. This bad thing happened. No, it's just fine. I'm okay. And that was kind of how I shared it, like very flippantly. And the leader of the group, this this older mentor in the faith said, you know what, Dave, when, when you shared that, that man, if I had gone through that, I would have felt really lonely. And if I had gone through this other thing, that would have hurt me really badly. And if I'd gone through this thing, that would have made me question this and that. And he he listened to my story and he helped me see it through the grid of scripture, right? Like he, he repeated back to me what I should have been feeling. Some of us have, have locked off our feelings, right? We've kind of like put up a wall because we've gone through painful things. We don't want to think about it. And sometimes we need a Christian friend like that that can kind of just help us look, analyze, talk about, think about the things that we went through. So I just want to encourage you to take those steps of thinking about it, going through the motions, even if you, like me 10 years ago, had no feelings, even if you don't have feelings, it's it's good to go through the motions of saying, well, how should I have felt about that? What did happen? What was good? What was bad? What was, you know, maybe a lot of it? I'm not sure. And allowing God to help you have new eyes, to look back on your family dysfunction. All right, we'll move on to the next point. The next point is kind of worse. Sorry about that. Um, The next point is not only did he have a dysfunctional family, but Joseph was just straight up abused. I mean, it it was evil that was done to him. He was hurt. This was criminal action, right? This was wrong. So look in verse 12. Story picks up and says, Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. Um, if you've been reading the book of Genesis already, or if you were hearing this story being told by the fireside in ancient Israel, Shechem would have made you like sit up and go, "Oh, yeah, that's where all that bad stuff happened already." So Jacob's sons had already gotten into a lot of trouble in Shechem. I'll just leave you hanging; you can go read about it yourself. Verse thirteen: And Israel said, "Israel is Jacob's other name." Israel said to Joseph, "Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come." I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me please where they're pasturing the flock. The man said, they've gone away for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Now again, I know sometimes we think, because they're Bible characters, it must have been good. This was bad, okay? This was wrong. His brothers shouldn't have wanted to kill him. They conspired to kill him. Verse 19, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, Reuben is the oldest brother, when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore them, to restore him to his father. So basically Reuben intercedes, oldest brother, he's like, no guys, don't kill him. This is crazy. Don't shed his blood. Let's just throw him into the pit, right? Let's just beat him up, teach him a lesson and Reuben's thinking, and I can go and rescue him later, right? So this is how the story continues to unfold. Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. So, so the honor, uh, the blessing, the, the specialness, the favoritism that Jacob had bestowed upon Joseph, they violently ripped that away from him. They tore that off of him. They were trying to shame him and they were trying to tear him down. Verse 24 says, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So it wasn't a well. He wasn't drowning, but it was a pit nonetheless that he couldn't get out of. Verse 25, then they sat down to eat. And that is irony, right? Beat him up, strip off his robe, throw him into a pit. And then they're like, all right, let's have a picnic. They sit down to eat. Looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? So Judah is saying, hey, maybe, maybe we could come up with another plan here, right? Verse 27, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. So it sounds like Reuben convinced them not to immediately kill him, They throw him into a pit. And then they're still thinking about killing him, right? And Judah's like, yeah, yeah, let's not kill him. Let's sell him. Let's sell him as a slave. We'll make more money. Again, we would put this in the category of abuse. They've become now slave traders. Verse 28, Then Midianite traders passed by. Midianite and Ishmaelite is, is interchangeable in the Old Testament. And they drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. So his brothers sold him into slavery. They threw him into a pit. They humiliated him. They wanted to kill him. Instead, they just sold him into slavery. This is abuse. This is sin. I don't know when Joseph was able to forgive his brothers. If you read the rest of the story, it seems that at the end of his life, he was able to do that. I don't know how long it took. And so I just want to speak to those of you who have had these kinds of horrible things done to you maybe from your brothers or sisters, maybe from people you didn't even know. But if you've had these kinds of horrible abuses, it's important to, number one, name it as sin, name it as abuse. Again, going back to the first point, it doesn't do you any good to just live in denial and act like it never happened. It can be like a cancer in your soul. As a matter of fact, I grabbed a a picture here of uh, cancer cells. When you go to the doctor, Um, They try to scan and analyze. They try to name what's broken, right? One of the most frustrating things is when you go and you're hurting and they can't figure it out, right? They can't find it. They can't see what's there. Um, But it's really important to be able to see it so that you can deal with it. And so I think this is an important step in our spiritual freedom that we would see the sin that people have committed against us and call it sin, so that we can deal with it with grace, so that because Christ forgave us, we can forgive them. But denial, you never really deal with it, right? Colossians talks about forgiveness this way. In Colossians three twelve and 13, it says, therefore, as God's chosen ones, right? Because God chose you, because God does favor you, because God likes you and, and loves you and And chose you for his love and to be adopted into his family. Because of this, as God's chosen chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion. Put on kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. So we see this reflected in, in Romans. It says, this is how God showed his love to us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You don't, you don't sit around waiting for a perpetrator of abuse to come and apologize, right? For the health of your own soul, you need to forgive that person. And I don't pretend that that's easy. Like I said in, in the Joseph story, I don't, know, I don't know that Joseph immediately forgave his brothers, right? We're, we're not even sure. It might've taken him years. But as we see that, that Christ has forgiven us for cosmic treason, for betraying the God of the universe, for shaking our fist at him, as we see that Christ has forgiven us for that, that frees our heart to be able to forgive others. A book I want to recommend to you in this process is a book called Redemption by Mike Wilkerson. Um, I've actually got extra copies of it up here on the stage if, if you want to get one, if you're kind of wrestling with this, with past abuse, your own sin against others or their sin against you and how that all mixes together. The book is really helpful. It works through um, how the gospel applies to our hearts, and it works through the Exodus story, which is Exodus is the next book in the Bible after Genesis. It's a story of God setting his people free from slavery in the Old Testament. So it talks about how that's what God is doing for us, and in that process, we have to forgive others. We have to recognize forgiveness we have in Christ. And there's a little story about forgiveness in here. It talks about a particular girl named Christine who was hurt and abused by her own parents. It says, despite the remaining tension in these family relationships, remaining tension, it doesn't magically all get better. Despite the remaining tension, by naming the sin, Christine reflects God's justice more clearly than if she were to pretend that her parents had not wronged her. And she reflects his grace more clearly than if she harbored bitterness about it. She is telling God's story with her life. And in doing so, she enjoys his peace. That might be the next step for you in your spiritual growth is is dealing with some of those things in your past that you've never wanted to deal with, that you've wanted to kind of wallpaper over, you know, close off, not think about, not deal with. And again, I don't pretend that it's easy, but it's an important part of our growth. The security that we have in the gospel, knowing that God has forgiven us, gives us that, that emotional Security and freedom to be able to look at these horrible things that we went through. And I want to clarify that God nowhere condones abuse or the injustices that have been done to you. The model is not that injustice is okay. It's not that abuse is okay. It's that God is so big and so powerful that he, through the cross, has taken the sin and abuse upon himself. And we're a part of that. Again, it's it's not just sin out there and we're innocent. We're all sinners, and God has forgiven us, and as we believe that God has forgiven us, then that gives us the ability and freedom to forgive others. I encourage you to take those next steps. Find a friend that you can talk through these things with, uh, a pastor at the church or a counselor that you could talk to, maybe an older mentor in the faith. It's helpful to talk through this with other people, but begin to take those next steps of forgiveness. The last thing I want us to see is that God's purposes can be hard to see. It's important to see that, right? Sometimes you're in a place in life where you're like, what, what are you doing, God? Is this the way the story's gonna end, right? Sometimes you're, you're living the cliffhanger. Our, our kids used to watch this cartoon called Reading Between the Lions, and they had this great character named Cliffhanger, uh, and he would be like, I can't hold on much longer, right? He was hanging onto a branch, um, I share that to lighten the mood a little bit because we're talking about all this deep and scary stuff. But a lot of times that's that's where we are, right? Like that may be where you are this week. Hopefully it's where you were 10 years ago and you're feeling way more settled right now. Um, but a lot of times that's where we are. We're just we're just barely hanging on. Like, God, what, what are you doing? I'm hanging on by a thread here. Y- you gave me these promises. You told me that you were saving me. You told me that I could trust you, but I'm I'm feeling unsure right now. And I think the best model for us of how to deal with that when we're in the middle of it is in the Psalms. So I want to read you the model of the Psalms, what we do with that, and then go back to the story and look at the cliffhanger that he leaves us with in the story. Psalm 13 is a great example of, of how to live this out. How to, how to live in the cliffhanger when it's hard for you to see God's purposes and you're feeling unsure about it. You know what you should do? You should talk to God about that. We call that prayer. We call that worship. But in the midst of of hanging on by the cliffhanger, it's hard to see God's purposes. Talk to God about your struggle. A lot of times in the Psalms, this is called lament. And so Psalm 13, lucky 13, it says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. So Psalm 13 is made up of six verses. And four of those, the first four is the psalmist. This one is Psalm, uh, King David in particular. But it's the psalmist crying out to God. How long, God? Where are you? He's hanging on barely gripping the branch, falling off the cliff, saying, how long, God? How long? And then he ends with these two verses. And this is a pattern you're going to see a lot in the Psalms. The freedom we have to lament and beg God to change our circumstances. But ending on, but I know you're gracious, right? He says in verse five and six, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And this is, this is the process of health in the Christian life. Being honest about the hard stuff you're going through. Confessing that to God, crying out to him, how long praying that he would change your circumstances. But also praising him that he is the God of ultimate salvation. That you know you can trust him. Now in this story, this episode. This is a cliffhanger episode. How many of you watch like TV shows where the last scene, it's like everything falls apart and it makes you want to watch the next scene, right? You, some of you watch those, those episodes, episodic TV, the serial stuff. Um, so let's look at verse 29. That's kind of how this, this story ends here. Verse 29, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. So apparently he was separated, right? Like maybe they're pastoring all over the place. He convinced them not to kill him throw him in the pit, he's somewhere else, he comes back, Joseph is gone. So Reuben tears his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? So now Reuben is brokenhearted. Verse 31, then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we found, please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. So Jacob comes to his own conclusions from the deception presented to him. Verse 34, then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. He's grieving. He's miserable. Verse 35, all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Sheol would be the Old Testament word for death, Hades, the afterlife. I will go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now there's a little, a little glimmer of hope, right? Because verse 36, it it says, meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer a pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Joseph still lives. There's going to be another episode in the story. But where is Jacob? Where? Where's Reuben? Man, they're broken-hearted. Everything has fallen apart. Not only are Joseph's dreams shattered, but Jacob's dreams are shattered. Reuben's dreams are shattered, right? And probably even the sons that wanted to kill him—they're—they're they're probably pretty broken and, and guilty at this point as well. So again, I want you to see that often we live in the midst of the cliffhanger. We, we live in this place where it's hard to see God's final purposes. And, and what I think we need to do is the same thing that they did in Genesis. So in, in Genesis, they could look back on the promises that God had given them in the past. And they could say, God has promised. And we don't know exactly how this is going to work out, but we trust that God is going to fulfill this promise. All the nations of the world will be blessed, as he promised to Abraham. And someday a son of Eve is going to crush evil once and for all as he cursed the serpent. And so the followers of God, those who trust in God, could, could look back on those promises. In a similar way, we are often in the middle of this cliffhanger. We're like, I don't know what you're doing, God. Like, why is this so hard? Why does this have to hurt so bad? And you're hanging on by a thread. But you can say, yet I will trust in your salvation, yet I will trust in your steadfast love. And what we cling to in this part of world history is we cling to the reality of a God who took our sin upon himself on the cross. We cling to hope because Jesus took our sin and gives us resurrection life. And even though everything's not finished yet, right? Even though we still live in this dysfunctional world of broken relationships and sin and brokenness and pain, even though our dreams may have been shattered, we look forward to this ultimate dream of God making the world right. And so he says this, as you think about your shattered dreams, Paul says this in Romans 8, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so you might be hanging on by a thread, you might be wondering what God is up to, but Paul says we can, we can consider that, that the current terror that we're living in The current brokenness is not worth comparing to the the glory and the perfection that we look forward to. And we know that we can trust in that future because God has revealed his character to us in his son. He gave himself for us. He came for us because he loves us and we can trust him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. I pray that these stories would would change us. Um, God, we don't like living through the cliffhanger. We don't like we don't like living through these broken moments. We pray that you would fix things. We pray that you would come quickly. But we also know that we can cling to you by faith. We can, we can trust in your steadfast love. And we pray that you'd give us new songs of salvation to sing, new songs of faith, that you would remind us of your goodness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.